Welcome to the Innovate for Impact podcast. This podcast is for leaders in the social sector like you who want to make a difference. Each episode is packed with practical ideas on how you can be more innovative and create an even bigger social impact. We share our ideas on what you can do and also speak to leaders from the sector to share best practice. So let's get into it and let's talk impact. Welcome back to the Innovate for Impact podcast. As usual, you're joined with Tracy Newman and Dan Bentley, and we're super excited today because uh, we have Joshua Ross, who's the co-founder of Humanitics. So good to have you here. Thanks for coming along on a Friday afternoon, Josh. Well, thanks, Tracy and Dan. Pleasure to be here. Great. So we always like to sort of kick off with a bit of a tell us a little bit more about who you are and what it is that you do, just for anyone who's living under a rock and isn't, isn't aware of Humanitics. It's a technology charity. And we have an education mandate and an accessibility mandate, but we fund our education programs and accessibility innovations through a very innovative social enterprise model where we worked out everyone hates booking fees. The incumbents don't act very nicely. So we built the world's first charity that does ticketing and lower the fees. So it's, it's a better experience. But we also put all the profits from the fees into the world's most deserving projects, in our opinion. So in Australia, we focus on Indigenous scholarships and education programs for regionally disadvantaged Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids. And globally, we focus on young girls' literacy programs. We've also built the most accessible registration platform in the world for people with disabilities. So a lot of disability groups use us. And yeah, that involved a lot of design workshops with people with you know vision impairments, hearing impairments, and a lot of other things. And so we're trying to solve social problems with technology as well as just you know disrupting the ticketing market. We actually got contacted by an event organizer literally a week ago who uh, wrote into us to say thank you. I'll read it to you. I just wanted to get a message to whichever team developed your check-in app. It's amazing. I am vision impaired and use a screen reader on my iPhone. We ran an in-person event this week. It was actually in Melbourne. I can't tell you how rare it is to download an app that is fully accessible. I usually need a sighted person to assist at registration to tick people off the list. I did it totally independently and I just want to say thank you and that you know the impact you have made for inclusion, Natasha. Wow. We had a similar one a few months ago from a disability group in North America who actually tried to build a accessible ticketing platform for disability groups, and philanthropists wouldn't fund it because it's, it's not inside the box. They found out about us through disability forums and say, thank you so much for doing this. We're on board. Wow. And we're now a partner in North America. Amazing. Yeah. Because it's so powerful when people actually just get to be able to function in the same way that everybody else does, sometimes we don't realise just how much of an impact that has for somebody just to be able to do their job by themselves properly. Yeah, we, we think about it intuitively in the physical world. Like if, if no theatres had wheelchair access ramps, we'd fix it. But in the digital world, if, if you can't look at an event online and see what it's about and buy a ticket, then it's kind of the same thing. It's just a bit more abstract because it's in the world of the web. But we've gone a layer deeper than that. We've actually made it so that you can be vision impaired and use our software to build an event and run it independently, which was a really interesting challenge to solve. And we can make it better, but it's, it's a work in progress. Yeah, that's cool. I think that's really great considering the reason why a lot of technology companies say that they aren't able to you know, include accessibility is often down to cost. And I know that yourself and Adam bootstrapped Humanitics. So how is it that you've been able to achieve that level of accessibility whilst perhaps not having huge amounts of funds? A lot of people joined us because they're passionate about what we're trying to do in the world. Our CTO, Ryan O'Connell, 
went to a Microsoft event with my co-founder, Adam McCurdy, on accessibility. And it was a competition. It was a hackathon. And we didn't know that much about accessibility. It was early in our journey. It was like a year in, just because it sounded interesting and a cool thing to go to. And, you know, at that point of the organization, you're just like swinging for networks and trying to get lucky and meet people. And it was there that we met this guy, Rocco, who was blind. And we had no idea what it was like for blind people going to events. And he said, I've given up going to live events. It's just, it's a nightmare every time. Like, I can't get the information I need to attend with confidence was the main message. And at this event at Microsoft, there were like a lot of disability groups. There was Australian Network on Disability. I think Vision Australia were there as well. And it was a hackathon for disability groups. We were kind of the random people there as well who didn't have a background in accessibility. We then did design workshops with people at the conference to work out why have they given up going to live events. And we worked out it was all to do with confidence and access to information. And so in the hackathon, our CTO put together a prototype of our solution and we ended up winning the hackathon. And then we rolled it out the next week. And that was our first step on the journey of accessibility. And we weren't fully accessible at that point in time, but like we could make a meaningful difference just by listening. I guess there's two ways to look at it. One is I need a document that says I'm web accessible for a government contract. The other is I'm going to make my platform practically good for people with disabilities. And I don't care about the paperwork. And so we started in the latter camp, which is we don't care about the accreditation. We just care about the social impact. And then, you know, once we could afford it, we could get accreditation. And we got a great deal because Vision Australia and Nobility in the US, who are like web assessment evaluators, love us because we actually care. <laughs> and so like they did us a favor and made it a lot cheaper for us to become web accessible. That's so cool. One of the things that we really wanted to talk to you about today, and I think this is all kind of tying into it, is just about how as an organization having such a strong mission and being driven by that, how that's really attracted great people to your organization and being able to sort of give you this extra currency, I guess, to be able to go into partnerships like that. So did you want to maybe talk, tell us a bit about the story of, of you know, how Humanitics has sort of come to, to where it is and that role that that strong mission and objectives that you've had as an organization has played in your success? It was a combination of things. One is um, me and Adam's friendship. We were lucky enough to spend some time backpacking together when we were 18, 19 through Southeast Asia and, you know, a Sydney kid who's had it pretty easy and you go traveling through some really poor parts of Southeast Asia and it kind of wakes you up to like the other experiences that other people have in this world. And so, you know, that and the values we grew up with in our homes left us wanting to do something with our time that made the world a better place. And that's a pretty common story, I think, but we didn't have any good ideas. And so, you know, we were kind of drifting back into our degrees and jobs in Sydney. We stumbled across a few inspirations, but a big one was Muhammad Yunus with Grameen Bank and his book, Banker to the Poor. For those who don't know that story, he came out with Grameen Bank, the first microfinance bank in Bangladesh. It's a non-for-profit that helps get people out of poverty, people that don't have paperwork who are literate and can't borrow from a traditional bank and don't have any collateral. And so I was like, that is so cool. He's taken an old industry banking that's notorious for screwing the poor. <laughs> He's turned it into something really good. And I'm like, I want to do something with that, like that with my life. But $2 loans don't go very far in Sydney or Melbourne or Adelaide. And we didn't have a better idea. But fast forward a few years, we were both, Adam was management consultant, but with a tech background and engineering degree. I'd worked in a, a funds management for seven years and learned a lot about different industries. And we recognized technology is the biggest driver of change. Why are there no tech charities in the world? Even to go further than that, and I'm generalizing here, there's some great exceptions, but generally speaking, charities suck with technology. They can't attract great software developers. Their philanthropists don't want to fund innovation. Well, if they do, they'll fund a pilot, but not a scale of it if it's successful. It's like the whole framework for non-for-profits and innovation is really tricky. And when I'm talking innovation, I'm talking with technology, not new programs for mental health that are, you know, a new 
school of thought or something. So we, we struggled at the start, but we recognized we needed a strong economic engine so that we didn't have to rely on philanthropy. And that's where the ticketing tie-in came in. Was it always in this format that it is today or has it sort of iterated and become what it looks like today? Did you have you know, an early idea that was a different business model or something and it's, and it's now ended up as how you explain what you do today at the start of the podcast or has it always been that sort of a model? There were definitely other ideas, but none that we rolled the dice on hard. To give you some examples, um, there was one that we were going to try and take on Facebook. <laughs> and at the time, they did about $22 billion in, in revenue, of which the vast majority was advertising. And we thought, how cool if you had a charity version of Facebook where you would say, hey, Dan, hey, Tracy, thanks for using Better World, we were going to call it. We generate $1,000 of advertising revenue from your account. Which charity would you like to give that to? We're a non-for-profit social media platform. And we don't just sell your data to make shareholders rich and we can act ethically, et cetera, et cetera. And all our profits fund amazing programs, so pick one. And for a million reasons, we couldn't get that off the ground. We didn't even try. We just kind of played with the idea and thought, and we were thinking, well, how would you make that work? Well, the problem with social media platforms is they lose money for a very long time. And so we don't have deep enough pockets as a non-for-profit. But maybe if we could get like an Adele or a Hugh Jackman to be our ambassador and say, I only use Better World now. We could get critical mass quickly. And out of that, we were thinking artists, entertainers. And out of that, we're thinking events. And out of that, spun ticketing. Like, oh, that's an immediate revenue stream. Everyone hates booking fees. And so, you know, we were just playing with ideas. And that's, I think, something Adam taught me really nicely. Because I came from a hedge fund world where the smartest guy in the room shoots down the idea and says why it won't work. And that's not actually good for innovation. It's a very egotistical way to ideate where Adam, who had a management consulting strategy, much more strategic background, said, no, you roll with a crap idea and you imagine how it can work. And so that's how we got to ticketing and, and yeah, we rolled the dice and it's worked so far. Yeah, I love that. That's such a great approach. Are you looking for innovative ways for your organisation to deliver more impact? Take our online assessment and receive a customised report in your inbox that highlights exactly what to do next. It takes only five minutes to fill out and it's completely free. Visit impactoconsulting.com.au slash self-assessment. when we talk about humanitics and the ideas that didn't work, I mean, you've had some amazing results. I know it's taken a while to get to the point that you're at now, but I was especially surprised when I actually saw what it looks like because we use humanitics and have done for a while. And when I first put an event up, I think I either spoke to you or Adam because I asked a question in a chat and, and one of you guys actually came back and said, oh, look, we can help you to promote your event and actually booked in some time with me and had a conversation and gave me some strategies to promote the event. So, you know, from the way that you are with your clients and I've, you know, I've seen other people say, oh, you know, I just sent this message, I put this message up and the founder responded. Like, so, so because you're so close to your clients, it feels like it's a very small business. So therefore, I was surprised to see that that you've got like a half a million tickets every month going through Humanitics. Like that's that's pretty significant. And in terms of the value that you're able to create for, I guess, your shareholders, which are children. It's a crazy concept. The world's poorest kids are our shareholders effectively. On that, we're soon to announce publicly this June quarter, we're giving 400 grand to our education programs. And so we're now at a run rate of giving close to $1.5 million a year to our programs. The last two years, unfortunately, have been really hard. With COVID, we laughed internally that like um, toilet paper boomed for who gives a crap. Thank you, made a mint out of hand sanitizer. 
and we were the poor buggers in tickets. <laughs> and so, but we're, we're coming back. And uh, yeah, it's really exciting. We're now like it's completely self-funding, sustainable, you know, generating over a million bucks a year to our programs. We also save a lot of charities money when they switch from platforms like Eventbrite, our fees are much lower. And so there's a few hundred grand there in savings for charities that use us that are mostly switching from Eventbrite. And in New Zealand, it's going well as well. And we've just launched in Denver. So if we can get this right the next five years, that should grow to 15, 20 million a year going to our programs, not costing anyone anything extra. Amazing. I used to do a lot of the sales and account management because you do everything as a founder. Um, and I still do. So I was just in Adelaide for three days at a schools conference, networking with schools because schools is a big market for us. Obviously, it's a perfect alignment with education. But yeah, we were just so shocked when we won our first event organizers because in the early days, it was just a, a nice idea with not such a good platform. We were incredibly grateful. And the people that used us in the early days only used us because they were values aligned. So we felt a real obligation beyond like just a transactional type of exchange. And so that was the culture from the beginning, like, holy shit, someone's actually using us because it was just an experiment. You know, culture comes from the top. And so we still make a point of helping clients and doing sales because we think the account, it's healthy for the account management team and sales team to see that. And I actually remember when I was at the hedge fund 10 years ago, Woolworths went through a real debacle. Their share price created management was having major issues and the share market wasn't very happy with the company. And an incoming CEO recognized that the head office had become out of touch with the stores. And the stores are the business. And so he made it mandatory that senior management have to spend a certain amount of time a month working from a store. And it could be the back room closet of the store. But it was part of the cultural turnaround. And so I think no matter how big we get, we'll always be a degree on the front line. It's really important that we don't fall out of touch with it. But it's also really important, we think, from a leadership perspective. A, senior people in our organization don't think they're beyond a, above a job. But B, that everyone in the organization sees that. That piece of you know, being really client centric. So, you know, it comes through from the leadership and it's built into the culture. And I think you're right, like that's what actually really helps in terms of having everybody see that you're actually translating through action your dedication to the mission and and living those values. And people can actually go, oh, you know, what do the values look like? Ah, well, we can see it because we can see it in action. Yeah, and it permeates across the team. Like our CTO with that disability hackathon at Microsoft, like he did all that in his spare time. It's a passion project for a lot of the senior leadership as much as it is a job. Yeah, let's talk a bit more about that um, because I know off air when we were speaking earlier that you were sort of saying a little bit about how a lot of this was built originally by for people who were just so aligned with your mission and wanting to give their time and their expertise and skills to be able to achieve what it is your organization was out there to achieve. Can you tell us a little bit about the story of, of all, how that all sort of worked? Yeah. So it started with me and Adam. We, um, when we were much younger backpacking. We, we made a pact that when we come up with a good idea, we'll support each other to do it and um, recognizing it won't always be equal. And so when we came up with the humanities idea, Adam was doing a master's in horticulture and agriculture and doing some consulting on the side, but he was in a much better position to leave his job. He also had a tech background. So we both moved back to our parents' places and I stayed in my job and we shared my salary on a handshake and he went full-time on humanities and I worked weekends and weeknights with him. And so, you know, for the first 16 months, we were sharing my salary and working really long hours. And at that point, I spoke at a little event and this guy, James, in the audience, he contacted us two weeks after, be like, I love the idea. Like, I've been looking in the social enterprise space. I'm not finding there's much out there for me, but I think this idea is for me. And we're like, cool, man. Well, we'd love to have you on board. 
I just quit my the job at the hedge fund. So now me and Adam were just volunteering. Yeah, I said to James, mate, we got no equity and we don't draw salaries. So if you want to move back to your parents' home and, and work for free, we've got <laughs> something for you. <laughs> and he said, sure, our job on the weekends. And so he worked for free for like oh, three wow. four months until we could get him on minimum wage. And then in that time, we realized we need a CTO and we found Ryan O'Connell. We needed a designer. We were very lucky. Anna, she is from Croatia, just moved to Australia, had a master's in economics, but then did a course in design and felt that was where her passion was at. So she had a bit of a portfolio, but was really starting her career. And um, she responded to an ad we put out for volunteer designers. And she came and spent six weeks in our office designing for us for free. And at the end of it, we're like, hey, we can put you on minimum wage. And so like just time after time, people joined us ahead of when we could afford them and just heroic efforts. Jake, who was a junior software developer, found out about us when he was at university through his mate who was working for us. Worked for about six months for free, but having to drive from far west Sydney for four hours a day to get to and from our office, which was our parents' home, and for free for about almost six months. And it felt so bad not being able to pay him. All these people are still with us now and earning like good income, so it's great. They were all strangers other than me and Adam. So it's really amazing when you just put it out there to the universe, people that step up. Amazing. And what was it that, about your organization? I mean, there's so many volunteer opportunities out there, right? But what was it about your organization, do you think, that was making them want to drive for four hours across from Western Sydney into wherever you were located and all these things you've mentioned? I've got to ask them that. I mean, I can guess. Like, I know for some of them what it was. So when they came into the office, it was Adam's parents' house, mostly. Yeah, first few years we were in our parents' homes. And so we got to about 12 staff around the dining table. It's getting a bit crazy, but it was fun. There was a dog. Adam's mum used to walk around offering everyone food. We were in our shorts. Because they're volunteers, you can't treat them like staff. So there was like complete equality. We'd all rip on each other and joke around. And uh, Adam's parents' house had a little sauna out the back. And so every Friday, we used to jump in the sauna. And it was just like a, an amazing moment in time where we were underdogs. We had this cool idea that could change the world, we believed. But it was all stacked against us no dickheads, everyone's quality, and it was fun. And it still is fun that that was a special moment. And I think what's what's lovely about that story is the fact that because it wasn't easy, it really got you to work together really closely. Sometimes when it's really challenging, it's easy to go, oh, you know, I wish that things were so much different and, you know, we would be able to do much better innovation, you know, we'd have a much better culture, all of the things would be much better if we had more money. But in actual fact, often the reverse is true. You know, you don't have much money. So you have to be creative around finding solutions. You don't have much money. So you have to encourage people to come as volunteers. Therefore, you end up with this great culture. Something I read, I don't even know if it's true, but I read it. Salesforce, they don't let you get promoted unless the people that report into you put you up for promotion and rate you highly. And the reason that they do that is because psychopaths manage up really well, not down. And so if you don't want psychopaths to climb to the top, put in a rule like that. That's not to say Salesforce has a perfect culture, but it was really interesting. We haven't had that type of challenge yet because we're still you know, less than 50 staff. And so everyone knows everyone and you can't really hide. Because it started with volunteers and a very flat structure, it's a very um, interesting culture from that perspective where junior staff, when they join us in their first six months, you know, they're learning the lay of the land. It's not normal here. 
But then six to 12 months in, they're saying it how it is <laughs> to anyone in the organization. There's always a moment of shock when they see someone doing it to me or Adam. And then we do a, a yearly conference where we go away for a few days and everyone, like a lot of firms stack those things with like activities. We don't. We don't try and set our 12 month strategy and things like that. We just say, guys, let's have a great time together. And on the back of that, whoever's joined us in the last 12 months comes back like a totally different person internally. They, they drop their guard and they start to be themselves at work completely. And I think that's the secret sauce we need to try and scale because when you have to put a face on when you go to work, it's exhausting. And I'd never not experienced that until we built Humanitics. Very open-minded people. One of the things you were saying offline was that the caliber of the people you've been able to attract to has been not just the fact you've been able to attract people, but the people, if you had to put out a paid ad, you may not have actually got that same person potentially. It was because of that mission and what you were trying to do that is not only just attracting people, it's attracting some of the best people (laughs) to want to partner with you and work with you. About three years into the journey, once we had some runs on the board, we're still working from the parents' place. We went to Atlassian's office because they did the day where 20 charities could go in there, pitch an idea and and get some staff help. And so um, we went in and we're like, we're hiring a big dev team. We want you guys to do all our final interviews for us. Will you do that as your volunteer hours? And they said, sure. And so they helped us hire our software developers. And they always said to us at the final interview, if they were going to recommend it, like, if you don't take them, we will. (laughs) And we're like, cool, then that's a good hire. (laughs) And they haven't got it wrong for us so far. That's so cool. Was there anything, Josh, that you wanted to make sure that we included in our conversation apart from, hey, everybody, let's make sure that all your events are on humanities? Do you want to talk more about the financing of innovation and like, philanthropy and the world of that world. I think that was something that Tracy mentioned to me prior to it, I think that I thought sounded quite interesting because I think you were having trouble at the start trying to find funding. It's still hard because the capital markets for innovation in the world of philanthropy are not developed. If Dan, if you make a billion dollars tomorrow and you start a foundation, you might start the foundation for prostate cancer because maybe, you know, if you're like me, your dad has prostate cancer. So that's what matters to you. And therefore, you give to things related to Prostate Cancer Foundation. That's good. Like, it's good that people are doing that. Don't get me wrong. But it's not overly rational. And so when you look at the for-profit world, people do what will make them money when they invest. They don't care if it's what they like or if they consume the product or if they've got an affiliation with the product. And so capital is a lot more efficient. Where in the world of philanthropy, it goes to what matters to you. And very few people have died from ticketing. So no one cares about ticketing when it comes to philanthropy, never mind what the end game is. We don't have an emotional sell. And we could try and do the emotional sell because all our profits go into amazing education programs for disadvantaged kids. And we could try and pitch it to the people that care about those kids and say, this is a more efficient way to do it. And that worked with some, but it was very few because usually in the world of philanthropy, you've got a grants manager who has a mandate. And within that mandate, it allows for things that have been done before because very few mandates imagine things in the mandate that haven't been done before. So the whole ecosystem of philanthropy is very rigged against true innovation or innovation outside the box. And that's a real shame because, well, it's just a massive restraint on the things we could be doing to make the world a better place. And so, yeah, we struggled a lot with that at the start, especially because our idea was pretty weird and new. But also we didn't try and sell emotionally. We tried to sell rationally. So like, coming from a hedge fund and management consulting, like our pitch deck was about the philanthropic return on capital, as opposed to here's a dying child in Africa and we can put your name on this building. You'll probably never get to speak about this because we're a website. We'd have no assets to give you. We don't run any gala dinner. It'll be a cool thing to talk at a dinner party because it's pretty revolutionary what we're doing, but like it's pretty abstract and it's pretty new. And so, you know, what we found initially was just individuals got it 
and liked it, but we kind of fell outside the remit of any major foundations because major foundations have gatekeepers and process and, and the process was constrained to repeating what they already do. Yeah, well, what about now that you've grown? Has that changed at all for you or have you just found different ways of being able to access funding that does work for your organisation and what you're trying to do? Yeah, so um, we're very lucky that we got to meet the Atlassian Foundation because it's such an innovative young company. They have their mandates and they have their guidelines, but they've also got a part of their portfolio which is called Courage Capital, which is for ideas that can't access capital but could have a lot of great potential for the world. You don't find things like that in the big traditional foundations. This idea still hasn't got the money it deserves. And I know you speak to any nonprofit, they'll say that, and there might be truth in that, but there's still very little funding for idea. We've, we've done well lately going into the US. We raised US $5 million, which is way more than anything we'd raised before. And that's not all in our bank account yet, but it gets released to us if we hit milestones over five years. Um, but it's all philanthropic funding. And because we had a track record in Australia with a really good social return on philanthropic dollar, we were able to do it, but it was still like you had to know people. You had to have been doing this for six years. Like we were very lucky that we're, you know, educated from Sydney, have good networks. It's still a broken system out there for a young social entrepreneur who doesn't come from a privileged background, who doesn't know the right people. That needs to change. And I'm hoping that if, you know, the thank yous of the world and us are successful, then it will become easier for the next generation of social entrepreneurs if they go down this path. The alternative to that is to do what Who Gives a Crap did, which I have a lot of respect for, where it's a, a for-profit and they've drawn a good line in the sand in terms of how their impact gets generated. It's not greenwashing. And his access to capital, as I understand, has been really good because he's able to tap into rational capital. Um, he's not having to try and convince big foundations to do something rational as opposed to emotionally driven or mandate stuck because toilet paper is not going to be in the mandate. <laughs> I can guarantee you that. <laughs> And the abstract that it's toilet paper for, you know, sanitation projects, or it's still outside the mandate. It's an intermediary. And they don't fund intermediaries. They fund frontline projects. And so computer says no. Heard that story a lot. And I know other social entrepreneurs do as well. Yeah. And I think it's that mindset, isn't it? Whereby it's all about, yeah, we want to see that kind of direct impact versus the intermediary piece. Look, Josh, really appreciated the conversation today. Loved hearing more about the impact that you're having, how you've been able to really get people on board with your mission and some of the work that you've been doing around, you know, really listening to people and caring and how that's translated into an even better customer experience, which therefore means that people want to use your platform and do good at the same time. So really enjoyed that conversation. Thanks so much. And thanks for your support. Really appreciate it. It's a lot easier to do this when people value what you do and, and switch across. Yeah, absolutely. And look, a lot of our listeners are in the not-for-profit space and run events and that sort of thing. So we'll um, we'll put a link to Humanitics in the show notes as well so people can go and check you out. We definitely recommend what you do. We've been using you for the whole time that our business has been around and uh, it's a great platform. And like we mentioned before, not only because what it does, but also just how accessible and human-centered it is as well. So thanks so much for your time, Josh. Uh, thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Innovate for Impact podcast. Any links to what we spoke about today will be posted in the show notes. If you'd like to know more about social innovation, visit our website where we have a heap of tools to help you on your way. Visit impactoconsulting.com.au. Thanks for listening. Now go out there and make an impact.